Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is one of the biggest characters in the music business, best known for managing the police and co-founding IRS Records. He's also played a key role in the careers of the likes of R.E.M., The Bangles, The Go-Go's, The Gramps, The Falls, Squeeze, Fine Young Cannibals and William Orbit. Even before all that, his life was fascinating. He grew up in the Middle East because his father, Miles Axe Copeland Jr., was one of the founding members of the CIA. He tells the whole story in his new memoir, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. Miles Copeland, thanks for joining me. Well, nice to be here. Uh, where are you at the moment? I'm in France, actually. Oh, is that a place you've had for a while? Yeah, I, as I mentioned in the book, I one of my crazier moments after I sold the record company, I uh, I bought this castle in France, and that's where I am at the moment. Oh, there we go. It's obviously a good choice. I spoke to your brother, Stuart, who was the drummer in The Police, last year about his podcast series, My Dad the Spy. Tell me a bit about what he was like uh, as a father, as a character. He had one uh, very positive thing as I look back on it. And he believed that, you know, everybody had something special about them. And, and the whole point was to go out and kind of do it, which is really kind of what we did. We never looked down on anybody, but we never looked up to anybody either. It was like, well, we're no better than anybody else, but no worse than anybody else. So why can't we go do something? I think that was sort of the idea. He had kind of pushed me as a kind of businessman and Stuart as a kind of musician. And so he kind of singled us out as, you know, what propensity we te- we tended to have. And he kind of pushed that. So I think he, he turned out to be a very wise parent. And he was a jazz musician when he was young. Yeah, I mean, he was the one in the family, uh, other than my brother Stuart, who was really musically oriented, you know. So it's kind of strange that his three sons all went into music and the youngest uh, became a musician himself. And in the beginning, my father was kind of suspect. I mean, he was saying to me, well, why don't you get a real job first and then go and start a record company or something, you know? So he kind of had the feeling that you had to get credentials someplace else before you, you know, had the gumption to go do it on your own. Whereas I tended to think, well, what the hell? And I just went ahead and did it. So in the, in, the, in the early 70s, you're working with, so you move on to Wishbone and Ash, you've got Squeeze later, you've got, this is, this is sort of pre-punk. But then when punk hits, you're sort of setting up a record label and, 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 and signing all kinds of people. Did you actually sort of personally like, love the music of, of everyone you managed and signed? Or was, were you sometimes just thinking, well, this isn't my cup of tea, but it's going to be somebody's? No, I, I think really... The only thing I had going for me was that I knew what I liked. And my assumption was, I'm not such a freak that if I like something, it can't be just only me that likes it. It must be other people, too. So I liked all the bands. I mean, I, I liked the Cramps, you know, Wall of Voodoo, the, the, all of the different, you know, the, the Cortinas, the, all these different bands. I mean, some were a little outrageous, and I kind of got off on the outrageousness of it. But uh, I genuinely liked what they were up to, and I liked the attitude that they expressed. So I was never somebody that was interested just in signing something because I thought it would be successful, because I passed on a lot of things that did become successful that I knew would become successful, but I just didn't like them. And I knew that I wouldn't be very good for them. If, 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 if you don't like it, how can you really sell it? You know, that, that was my view. And obviously, like, you know, success is this sort of, this confluence of the talent of, of, the, of the artist, the skill of the manager and the label, the timing. When you look at sort of the police, where they obviously had so many things going for them, 
what can you identify as something that you did where you think as as a manager you know pushed them up a notch made a difference at a crucial point well in the beginning the police just could not get arrested i mean nobody cared <laughs> they were not looked upon as punks because sting had come from the last exit a jazz band uh, Stewart had been in Curved Air, which was a you know classic rock band. Andy Summers, you know, he'd been in Soft Machine for Christ's sake, which is probably the most progressive of all the progressive bands that ever were. So they were not accepted as part of this new movement, but they did get off on the whole challenge the the system, go your own way, think small and big at the same time. So they could they would go out and be happy playing on a small amplifier. Uh, unlike, let's say, some of these rock musicians who would put 30 martial amps on stage and only two would actually be turned on. But it was the look of it that was important. Whereas the police, they liked the whole punk ethic of it's not the look that necessary, it's the attitude that's more important. When I heard the song Roxanne, it was the antithesis of what was going on in the punk movement. It was a love song. It was fairly minimal. It was well-played. And the police actually thought that it was a throwaway. They, they didn't want to play it to me because they thought that I would immediately reject it because it wasn't punk. But they made the mistake of not understanding that I was just looking for something great. I didn't really care whether it was punk or not. When I heard Roxanne, I realized that was the song that was going to change all our lives. And that's exactly what I said. I said, gentlemen, this song is going to change our lives. It's bigger than me. I'm going to take it to AM Records and get you a real record deal. And they looked at me like I had two heads. They said, what? You like that? <laughs> and I think Sting must have had it back in his mind. He th- must have been thinking, well, hell, Miles likes that. Maybe there's some other songs uh, I have up my sleeve that it might fit as well. Things like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Message in a Bottle, Walking on the Moon, and all these sort of things were probably lurking back in his mind, you know. And the names of the label you set up, IRS, and then your brother Ian's booking agency, FBI, were these sort of like playful nods, I suppose, to your, your father's work. Given that most musicians at that time probably weren't fans of the CIA or the US government uh, in general, did you ever encounter sort of problems or suspicion of your motives because you weren't hiding this background? Well, we, we thought it was sort of funny, really. And, you know, starting with Stewart and the police, when somebody would ask him, you know, why did you call your band the police? He just said simply, well, because there are police cars driving all around the world advertising my band. FBI is... Um, the front, you know, which which was called Frontier Booking International, actually, because we got in trouble with the FBI when they called up and said, you can't use the words FBI. <laughs> and uh, so we had to immediately answer, you know, change the phone to be Frontier Booking International. But the idea is that, you know, you love the police and you hate the police at the same time. If you're in trouble, you want the police around. If you're smoking marijuana or whatever, you don't want them around, you know, so it's a double entendre. And I think the same kind of came for me with IRS. It was thinking of something that would kind of jolt people into pay attention. And I did have one problem with the name IRS, and that was a group called X, which was a kind of a darling of the West Coast punk scene. And uh, the lead guitarist came to see me, and uh, I was hoping to sign X to IRS. And I think we were talking to no, no more than four or five minutes. He finally jumps up and says, my band will never sign with your label. I know IRS is a front to find out the, where youth is going. You're really a front to investigate youth trends. And he stormed out of the office. I'm thinking to myself, 
what? <laughs> and anyway, so, but he, he was one of the few because the label became known as one of the few places that would sign some of these crazy and wacky groups, you know. Well, I mean, suppose on the other end of the scale, you mentioned that John Cale was actively interested in, in this subject, in intelligence agencies. And I spoke to him a few years ago and talked to him about in, in the early 80s, I think he actually joined a defence think tank. He was so into this. Was he the only musician you came across who had such, uh, such interests? Well, he was, he was almost a fanatic, you know, he kept drilling me, you know, saying, come on, come on, tell me the real story behind this, you know, I know, you know, he would keep saying, you know, (laughs) he assumed that I knew all these deep stories about whether the CIA really did this or really did that. And at one point, uh, he did, he, he saw a magazine that I'd had, which has a circulation of like 150 people or something. It was a magazine that was selling, you know, jet fighters and tanks and howitzers and this and that. And so he immediately wanted to find out how you get to be a subscription to this magazine, which was quite expensive, actually. But he ended up signing up and actually was was the only musician I ever knew that was getting copies of defense. It was called Defense and Foreign Affairs. And uh, he, he was getting that magazine. But, yeah, John Cale was a fanatic sort of follower of this whole spy thing. And actually, when we started a record label together, he called it Spy Records. And how keen a sense did you have of, I suppose, the potential of some of these? Because IRS is bad. I mean, Go-Go's were were very big for a while. Bangles, you know, ended up getting very big. REM, obviously, the biggest of the lot. But I don't know whether when you first hear, like, the Chronic Town EP, you're necessarily thinking that REM are going to be one of the biggest bands in the country. Like, how... How much were you able to sort of, how much potential were you able to see and how often were you surprised, I suppose, by how far people would go? Well, I don't think I ever approached any of the bands thinking this is definitely a home run. It's going to be a number one record. My view was it's almost like American baseball. You know, the first job is to get the first base. The Mm. second job is to get the second base. The third job is to get the third base. Then you get, then you have a home, you know, you go home, you know, but if you don't go to first base, you don't go home, you know? So my, whether I, you know, when I heard Roxanne, I knew it was going to be an important song that I think it was going to help the police become the biggest band in the world. I would be a liar to say, yes, I knew for sure the police are going to be the biggest band in the world. When I signed the Go-Go's, I thought they would be successful, but did I think it would be a number of, you know, the only all girl group to have her number one record in America? On the Billboard charts? No, I didn't know that. Uh, and I think that would be the same with all of them, from Fine Young Cannibals, R.E.M., The Squeeze, Squeeze Jules Holland, anybody. But you recognize a talent, you recognize something special, you push it, and it goes as far as it's going to go. And a lot of where it goes depends on the artists themselves. And, you know, the artists that were more open uh, succeeded like you know somebody like Jules Holland and the police if you, you know they're they're very similar in that they had very positive attitudes and they always said well yeah why not whereas I had other people that were probably just as talented who second guessed everything and were worried what their friends would think and you know would go like oh is that really the smart move and they would spend more time worrying about what mistakes they could make before they could think about well Hell with what if we made a mistake or two? So what? Let's have some successes. So my view is always, you know, it's sort of like the title of the book: two steps forward, one step back. You're gonna have mistakes. I don't care how smart you are, how good you are, how intelligent, whatever. 
you're going to stumble. But as long as you keep moving forward one way or another, you're two steps forward, you can succeed. You know, so I, I made a point in the book of discussing the mistakes just as much as, as the successes, because I think I learned as much from them, sometimes even more so than I learned from the successes. You know, mistakes are part of the game. And some of the bands that you work with stayed together for a very long time. Some uh, fell apart after, you know, two or three albums. And everybody is different. Like every band has its own very complicated chemistry. Over the years, did you, did you come up with any sort of general rules or bits of kind of universal advice about what keeps a band together? Well, I guess the universal advice is that most bands – they imagine once they've made it, that they've made it. And they don't realize that what goes up can also go down. And so you have to respect somebody like uh, the Rolling Stones or U2 or those bands or REM that just really stuck to it a long, long time. And those bands that broke up after album one, two or three, thinking that they were going to be stars afterwards, very, very few people left those bands and carried on and became stars themselves. And a lot of those bands then later reformed because they realized once you've got that success, it's hard to keep. Sometimes the ingredients of success are something that you can't really put your finger on. And I, I mentioned Dave Gilmore in the book, who actually I spent hours with one night after a Pink Floyd show. And he told me the whole story of putting the Pink Floyd back together again when he realized that it wasn't really the musicianship that mattered. It was just something special that they had as a group that worked. And when he realized that, he reformed the band. And I think that's the problem of a lot of bands, is they don't realize what they have when they have it. And I know that was the problem of the Go-Go's. They recently put out a documentary where they actually say that. They got to be so big, they forgot just how big they were and broke up and started suing each other. And then it wasn't until years yeah. later that they reformed and then carried on again. And one thing that struck me reading the book was that you've been aware for a long time, and I think the, des the story of Sting's song, Desert Rose, is an example of this, of the potential of licensing songs to adverts and films, the value of songwriters as well as artists, you know, you getting getting different songwriters together at your, at your place in France. What do you make of the current, big trend in the music business of companies like hypnosis snapping up song catalogs and treating them like financial assets like if you would you advise a client to sell right now in this kind of market or to hold on to them well i think you know a lot of really big artists have decided to sell because they're at that age where they're thinking well okay I'm, i can sell my catalog and make you know two or three hundred million dollars hey i could have a lot of fun with that right now do why keep it? And I'm going to be dead in 10 years. So what good is it to me then? So I think a lot of really big artists, you know, Bob Dylan or whatever, thinking about selling their catalog for hundreds of millions of dollars is probably a smart idea. In terms of other songwriters, I mean, publishing continues to make money. If you want a song in a, in a commercial, you have to pay the publisher. You know, you have to pay the person who wrote the song and the person who recorded the song. So publishing is one of the assets, just like, uh, you know, somebody's going to make a collection of podcasts or any other content. You know, they say content is king. So my advice would be, I guess it really depends on what position in life you are as to whether you sell or not. But I think one thing for sure is you can't take everything with you. So 
<laughs> at some point, how many millions do you need? And right at the end of the book, um, this is sort of a very funny story about kind of um, Donald Rumsfeld, who just who just died. You write about the Iraq War, which you opposed. But you also mentioned just in passing your father's role in allowing sort of Saddam to seize power. And he was also partly responsible for what turned out to be bad outcomes in Syria and Iran. The timescales differ. But I asked you at this as well, like, how do you feel about his legacy now that when you've got a father uh, that you really loved and respected, but then also somebody who has had this effect on the history of a region? How do you assess that? Well, you, you, you look at it in several different ways. There are hundreds of thousands of Iraqis today that if they were honest, they would tell you they wish Saddam Hussein was back in power because 200,000 of them were dead. And all the Sunnis would much prefer having a, a Sunni leader than a Shia leader. So there are plenty of Iraqis, uh, Iraqi women, who, who, who are freer under Saddam Hussein than they were under, uh, than they are now. So it depends who you speak to. There are other Iraqis who would say, well, Saddam was a terrible guy. But remember that the period in which my father was in the CIA and America was doing some of this skullduggery in the Middle East, the world was bipolar. It was Western capitalism versus a Soviet communism. The world was divided in two. So we tended to look at leaders from the standpoint, are they on our side or are they on the other guy's side? And there were really just two sides. So Saddam Hussein was on our side. And as my father used to say, well, he's a bad guy, but he's our bad guy, as opposed to a bad guy that's on the, on the other side who's, who's supporting communism and the Soviet bloc. So you have to look at it in the context of what was going on in the world. Well, today, of course, we have a new dynamic with with uh, China rising and Russia and, you know, the, the things have changed, you know, so the dynamic is different. But it's very easy for now to look back on something and say that was a big mistake because you're looking at it out of context. In the context of where the American situation was at the time, we would back people that were even opposed to us as long as they were more opposed to the communists. So I remember my father once saying to me, so-and-so leader in, in Lebanon or Egypt or so-and-so was not a good guy and he was, was anti-American, but he was even more anti-Russian. He was more anti-Soviet. So we would back him and the guy wouldn't even know we were backing him. But it was basically because we looked upon the Soviet Union as the real enemy and the whole game was to, did we really care about Lebanon or Iraq or any of these countries? Well, probably not so much. But we did care about whether we were going to be beaten by the Soviets. Finally, you say that you're right at the end, which quite surprised me. Uh, you say that your, your motto is people are shit, meaning expect the worst and you'll be pleasantly surprised. In your experience over the years, have you been pleasantly surprised more often than not? Or does that, um, how often does that motto hold true? I find myself saying that motto often, but I, I'm constantly surprised by good things that happen. If you expect the worst, you're likely going to get it. And uh, unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen quite a lot of that. I think a lot of the people who voted for Brexit are now wishing they hadn't. A lot of people who voted for Trump are thinking, oops, did we make a mistake? There are a lot of political situations around the world, you know, Maduro or Chavez or some of these places around the world. People are thinking, well, did we do the right thing? 
I say it sort of as a joke, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's also partially true, really. If you look on the, uh, if you constantly think that the world's going to be bright, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you know that there's a lot of bad things going to happen, then uh, you can be happy when a good thing does happen. So how many, uh, you don't need to name them, but uh, how many people in the music industry then over these decades did you, did you encounter where you thought, you know, you came away from a, a meeting with them or whatever and thought, this is a genuinely terrible person uh, that I, I would really like nothing to do with? Well, the one person I talk about in the book was a, uh, a manager who apparently, according to the, the vibe of the time, was Jake Riviera, who was managing Elvis Costello, who made a point of bad-mouthing me. But I, I came across some very good people, Jerry Moss of A&M Records, you know, who I consider one of the great men of the record business. Malcolm McLaren, I thought, was brilliant, but I didn't think he was particularly brilliant for the Sex Pistols in terms of them being a band. You know, he was brilliant getting publicity, but I would have never called him a manager. I think he was more of a promoter than he was a manager. They wanted to be a group. At least that's the impression I got when I toured with them. But uh, he wanted them to gain notoriety and gain press, you know. So was he a manager? No. Bernie Rose, I didn't think much of him either. That's going back to the punk days. But you come across good people and bad people. There was a president of Capitol Records who I went to him and I said, you've got this iconic building in Los Angeles and it would make a great merchandising setup. You have Capitol Records. It was the home of the Beatles and Frank Sinatra and this and that. You know, you could make a fortune as a record company promoting that. And the guy the guy looks at me and he goes, oh, well, gee, I don't want to promote the, the building. And I said, well, why on earth would you do that? He said, well, it might attract terrorists to blow it up. And I thought, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like somebody's going to single out the Capitol Tower in Los Angeles to blow it up as a strike <laughs> against the Western civilization, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what comes across idiots, you know. But, you know, a lot of the smart people, I had the president of Columbia Records tell me that Walk Like an Egyptian was not a single. He swore to me it wasn't a single. But yet he then agreed that he would put it out and honored his commitment to me. So I, I walked out of that room at the second time thinking, well, actually, he's a really good guy because he honored his commitment. Yeah, yeah. Most record company people would say, well, it's not a single. Screw you. Get out of here. You know, I have come across very good people. But I've come across bad ones as well. And I come across people that are very talented that shoot themselves in the foot. And that's the problem. A lot of artists, you know, they're, they don't really appreciate what they have and they're prepared to ruin it without really thinking about it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Miles Copeland. Nice to talk to you. Uh, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business is published by Jawbone. And thanks to you for listening. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.